So my husband Rich and I, not too long ago, bought a new toaster. And some of you may know that um, we lost our old toaster in a fire that started in our kitchen about a year ago, or over a year ago, that was in the corner of the kitchen. The coaster was in a cabinet with a lot of appliances. In fact, the coffee pot, the espresso maker, the blender, the electric can opener. And a fire started there. And it basically destroyed our whole kitchen and uh, swept through our house. So when we got the new toaster, we decided to um, look at this little booklet that came with it that um, is entitled Important Safeguards. (laughs) And we read them very carefully. Okay, so the first one is read all the instructions. Second one. Always unplug from the outlet your toaster when not in use. Pay attention to that one. And then there's a lot of other ones that, you know, like don't use it outdoors. (laughs) Don't place the toaster on or near a hot gas or electric burner. Oh, well, just recently I moved the toaster then from next to the stove to another place. Um, But then this was one of the 18. We found this one interesting. Do not operate your appliance in an appliance garage or under a wall cabinet. Oops. So you may wonder where I'm going with all this. But after reading these toaster rules, Rich said to me, you know, it takes 19 rules to learn how to operate a toaster. But God only needed 10 to teach us how to operate a human life. Just like using a toaster, we need to read all the instructions contained in our scriptures to help us avoid creating disasters in our lives. So this morning, we read those 10 rules of life, not once, but twice. And then followed by, we, we followed that by chanting Psalm 19, which extols the beauty of the law, the wisdom that comes from following all of its instructions. Um, A different translation says, the law of the Lord is undefiled. It converts the soul. So this psalm affirms that the law is life-giving. It helps us sort out all those disordered affections referred to in our colic this morning. But this is often not how the law is presented in popular Christian discourse. Instead, it sometimes goes like this. God gave Israel the law so that they could be God's people on earth, but it didn't work out very well because Israel failed. So God came up with a new plan, better than the law, which is the gospel. So we don't need the law anymore because we have been forgiven and we can live in grace. Or this, the law belonged to the old covenant. In the new covenant, we have Jesus' teaching and the golden rule. And then often in our own personal lives, we think, oh, we mustn't concentrate too much on keeping rules because, and this is probably true, we might fall into living a life of works or look at life only in black and white rather than living in grace. So our tradition in Advent and Lent is to read the Ten Commandments, and I often, if sometimes that might produce a little bit of discordance in our minds if we think maybe the law does not need to be paid attention to quite as much as they did in the Old Testament. Um, Several years ago, I attended a bat mitzvah, 
um, of, a, of a friend of ours who was part of a messianic congregation. And at the beginning of this bat mitzvah, the elders brought in this beautiful silver and gold book that contained the Torah, which is technically the first four books of the Bible. And they proceeded, just like we do with our gospel, proceeded in with song and put it in a special place in their tabernacle. And I thought to myself, well, wow, so that's where we got that tradition. But why are these Jewish Christians not carrying the gospel book? And I pondered about that, and I thought about it again last night when I was preparing this sermon. And I thought then, last night, you know, they probably understood something that we don't quite get. So let's turn to our passage in Romans 7 and 8. And let's try to figure out what Paul really says about the relationship between the law and the gospel. So this passage begins with an answer to a question that Paul asked in the previous verse. This question is, did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me which brought me death. No, the law is holy and the commandments are righteous and just and good. And after this opening salvo, Paul shortly launches into his famous and rather confusing soliloquy where he ponders, I do not understand my actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. So there has been a lot of speculation about this passage. Is, ta is Paul talking about the state of his soul before or after conversions? Others have referred it to it as simply Paul's spiritual autobiography. But N.T. Wright, in his book, Into the Heart of Romans, suggests something very different. He says that Paul's use of I here is not Paul giving his spiritual autobiography, but rather it's his way of identifying himself closely with the story of Israel, Israel's inability to keep the law, and also the inability of humanity itself, because the sin of death originated in the garden. Thus, this I, Paul, is referring to, is him joining with the predicament of the whole human race without Christ. Without Christ, we cannot do what we want because we cannot be, get beyond this human predilection to sin. Without Christ, we are stuck in sin, and we are programmed to fail to keep the law. And N.T. Wright even suggests that Paul's reference to sin here is not merely specific acts of personal sin, but in Wright's words, the dark power that lies behind all human idolatry, injustice, and immorality. The I in Romans 7, then, is the pre-converted, pre-baptismal state of any human being and of us. So I am leery of any evangelistic technique that leaves out this step or recognitions of one's moral failure without Christ. 
How can anyone understand the depth of freedom one is given through the gospel and the spirit without first understanding their need for Christ because they are just not making it in the life in which they are trying to live up to, to whatever standards or moral code they have set up for themselves to achieve. Their first must be repentance and a cry for help. I believe that Paul's description of the human condition in Romans 7 must be realized by all of us, even now, if we, as we perhaps renew our baptismal vows, that we need Christ before we can experience his true joy. Thus, Paul finishes this long section in Romans 7 by crying out, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And thus, Romans N begins with a therefore. Therefore, because of all this long argument that he has been developing in Romans 6 and 7, therefore, there is no condemnation if anyone is in Christ. They have been set free from sin and death. They can now live by the spirit of life. And why is there now no condemnation? Well, Paul says that in Christ, the Father has done two things. The first is that he has given up his son to the redeeming work of the cross. And the second is that through that cross and the subsequent resurrection, God was able to release the work of the Spirit so that the law might be fulfilled, not replaced. By sending his son, the father was able to deal with the sin that prevented the law from succeeding in making a people who imaged his goodness and love. He sent his son so that in his incarnation, he could also become like humanity in that he also was an incarnated son, was an image bearer of his father. But unlike sinful humanity, Jesus Christ was the true and perfect image bearer of the father and he fulfilled the law's requirements by living a perfect human life. But that is not all. He then took upon himself humanity's failure to meet the law's requirements by dying the worst kind of death the Romans could have conceived. And therefore he conquered death by death and sin through his death. So, in Paul's words, that the just requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk, not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Romans 8 continues past this opening verse to explain that in our new spirit-filled life, yes, we might still have a tendency to sin according to our old selves or our sinful nature or in the parlance of much of spiritual direction today, our false selves. But Romans 8 tells us that unlike Romans 7, we are no longer determined by the human nature of sin. We still live in the bodies that were corrupted in Eden, for we have not yet received our new bodies that we will obtain in the new creation, but we are no longer captives to sin. 
in Paul's parlance, this means we are no longer exile, in exile from God. We no longer live in exile. We are no longer separated from God. Thus, the law has been rescued from its role as a mirror of the sin of humanity, and now in the new creation is life-giving, which was God's intention for the law all along. The law has been vindicated, not thrown out. Its true purposes are now fulfilled in the life of the Spirit. So there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ, and in Christ meaning what is true of him is now true of us, and we are now Christ's spirit indwelt people. So why have the designers of our lectionary in the ACNA prayer book offered these passages, Exodus 20, Psalm 19, and Romans 7, 8, to be read in the middle of Lent? We're not reading a continuous, uh, not doing a continuous reading of Romans and our lectionary during Lent. This passage just kind of appears kind of out of the nowhere amidst other epistle passages like Corinthians and Ephesians. So let me take a stab at answering that. On Ash Wednesday, we are invited into an observance of a holy Lent. We are invited into a period of self-examination and repentance. We acknowledge the wretchedness of our souls, and we hear the Ten Commandments each Sunday and receive forgiveness. There is an assurance and comfortable words after we read these commandments. But so in the middle of Lent, we get Romans 8, because I think our designers of our lectionary wanted to emphasize that no matter how much we might fail in our Lenten vows, how much sin we might uncover in our examination of the true conditions of souls, our future in Christ and in the promised creation is rock solid. There, if you read to the end of Romans 8, it says there is nothing that can separate us from the, lot, from the love of Christ for those of us who, have, who are found in Christ. Romans teaches us that the ultimate rescue from sin we are seeking is found in Jesus Christ himself, that his nailing to the cross, the failure of humanity to stop sinning, applies to our own condition as the children of God. It gives us a chance to then look ahead to the passion week that we will be experiencing quite soon. So, thus I hope in Lent, when we are finished admitting our failures and realizing that we are forgiven, we also hear Romans 8 as an opportunity to turn to God for more. At the beginning of our service, we prayed a colic that acknowledged our soul's desire for God. Heavenly Father, who has made us for thine own self, wherefore our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. And this is where Lent is going. We are admitting 
are failures. We are trying to figure out what are these disordered desires that fill the God-given hole so that we can clear the debris, the debris and experience more of this wonderful spirit filled life that he has promised to us. That is where Lent is going. So walking in the spirit, what does that mean? And I am struck actually by the response that we give when we read the Ten Commandments. Incline our hearts to, he to obey your law. Incline our hearts to the spirit. Pay attention. And inclining our hearts also means that we need to invest in this relationship with God through silence, prayer, scripture reading, especially in the Gospels and Lent, because that's where Jesus' teachings apply the requirements of the law to the human heart. We need to take time to yearn for God through walks or music or whatever practices bring you closer to the realization that your utmost desire is God. Through the practice of self-examination, you may discover ways that God is changing you and untangling the desires of your old self. And let God purify those desires into the desire to live and live in and for God, whom we will never be separated from and whom we will enjoy a feast on the day that he comes back. The law of the Lord converts the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure. Amen.